Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, hey, welcome to uh, Hoop Fest weekend here in the Tri-Cities. I don't know if you passed that on your way in, but I think they missed an opportunity, guys. We could have called that Hoop Fest with just the HU with one of those little umlauts up top and really cashed in on some great marketing there. Um, but uh, anyways, glad you made it. Thanks for taking the detours and getting here this morning. We are um, finishing up a series, four-week series uh, that we've been calling Irreligious. It's a series on labels. And we said that in life, there are a lot of labels that we wear. Um, some of them uh, are good, some of them are bad. Some of them we're proud to wear. Like, you know, if you've ever been a parent of an honor student, you can't wait to put that sticker on the back of your car. Uh, if you're the new project manager, you got a big promotion, you like change the email signature and then send out as many emails for no reason as you can, just so that email signature says project lead or something on it, right? Or uh, whatever. Or when you graduate from, from a prestigious collegiate institution, you're like, I just, just so you know, I'm a CBC alumni. So anyways, <laughs> you have all kinds of different things that we are proud to do, to uh, kind of do. And then sometimes we're reluctant uh, to, to be uh, that if you've ever gotten, if you're a parent of a student and you've ever gotten a call from the school and then you know that that's bad usually. And then uh, you pick up the phone and they say, are you the parent of, you know, so-and-so? And you're like, uh, maybe, like, <laughs> is this a good thing or bad? What am I doing? I don't want to, I don't know if I want to be labeled the parent of that uh, in that way. And it can happen fast. You can be proud at one moment and reluctant really fast. Like, so last year, we hosted a, a, a back alley fundraiser. We do these like once a year, usually in the in like late summer. We're gonna do another one this year again for Partner Haiti. It was a Partner Haiti fundraiser, silent auction, live music, had the string lights out. It was a beautiful night. It was awesome. We raised a ton of money out there for for missions and. Um, and so the, Brittany, who's been a friend of mine since high school, came up and shared her story about all the things that we've been doing in uh, Haiti. And, and we bought an ambulance last year. And so we saved X amount of lives. And here's some stories. And it was so cool. And at the very end of her long speech, she just said, hey, before we go, I just want to say a quick thank you to Pastor Brent Eastlake for hosting this big event. Everybody clapped. And I'm just like, you know, proud as peaches to get up there and and uh, and be the, the guy who put on this event. And about five minutes later, the police showed up because there was a noise report. And they go, who's in charge here? And I was immediately reluctant, right? I'm like, her name's Kylie. Let me go grab her. She's, Kylie, they'd like to talk to you. <laughs> We've been a little loud and we didn't fill out the correct paperwork. Um, so anyways, life can come at you fast and you can be proud, reluctant, and all those kind of things. When it comes to one of the labels in our life that, uh, that kind of falls in this uh, kind of paradigm is the, the label of religious. At some points, you can be, you know, new converts if, if, or if you're new to the church thing or, for, you know, faith is kind of a new thing. There can be a, a season early on specifically when, like, I'm proud to be religious. Or you grew up and you're just like, hey, nothing can happen to me. I, I'm, the best people I know are people of faith. Um, the, the effect that the church actually has on community as opposed to like government organizations where a ton of money gets thrown at things and everybody's a number and nothing seems to ever get done, but you give it to a church and, and uh, a, a lot of times the, the feet on the ground, the boots on the ground, the, the, the relationship, that can make you proud to be like, I'm proud to be a part of this denomination or this church or, or, or whatever it is. And, and you hear the mission stories of people, things happening around the world. And you're like, that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. 
fuzzy inside. I'm, I'm proud to wear that label. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, some bad things can happen too. There can be some, some moral failures. There can be some, some spending issues, some stories that come out. Sometimes the, 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 the reason it hurts the most is because it's the people that you expected it from the least, right? Or the people that you trusted the most. And there's hypocrisy and all kinds of stuff. And so you've been, you, know, you can be proud and reluctant uh, at the same time in, in this area. And, and, and so we said a lot of times, uh, in our kind of scenario, and specifically, if we're going to be a church designed for people who aren't typically in a church, if that's going to be our target, then what I know about people is going to be that they're a little bit lean more towards the idea of the prospect of being irreligious, right? Um, I, I can be in, I'm, I'm spiritual and I'm seeking and I'm, I'm open asking questions, but uh, the if I was to kind of label it, I'd be like, I'm irreligious. I, I do go to church. I, do, I, go to, I go to a church, this church, but I don't want to necessarily assign myself or, or, or join up with uh, the, the capital C Christian basket or, or anything like that. So I, I get it, and, and I want to kind of address that. I want to talk about it for a few weeks, and that's what we've been doing leading up to this series. I don't think you need to rush away from this, and, and there are some good things about this that if you think about um, are, are worth, worth doing, not just in terms of changing our title, but uh, thinking through what it means to be religious in that way. Um, so, but today I want to talk about a different sort of label, and uh, it's not that I'm bypassing this. I think it, hopefully it circles around to it and helps us make sense of it. Uh, it's a label that it, it can be synonymous with irreligious, or it leans, you know, we, we, it's far more, it's far less complicated, because religious and irreligious is, is sort of uh, complicated. This one is, is, is pretty easy, and it's the title simply of self-made. And, uh, and if, if, you, if you have had success in life and have a business to show for it or money to show for it or things to show for it or whatever, like there, that's a title that, um, that people love to cling on to. And there's no hesitation towards being, I'm, uh, listen, I'm self-made and, and uh, I'm proud of that sort of thing. And, and, and it's good and, and, and ambition's good and, and you know, all that kind of stuff is important. Um, but the, I only bring it up because, it, again, it's a label that we are quick to be like, that's typically one that we're, we're proud to kind of associate with it. Um, if you've ever walked through uh, a bookstore in an airport, um, you've seen the Hudson booksellers. They, th- those, those bookstores or book distributors or whatever seem to be so much different than the average Barnes & Noble that you would go into, right? You, you walk into an airport bookstore and immediately at the front are a bunch of books on self-made people. Um, here's how I became rich and famous. I hurried up and mattered, and you can too. And you don't need anything in life. You don't need anybody except one thing, this book. That's the only thing that you need. And if you can have this, you too. And I don't know if they've figured out their target market. People in the airport are like, I'm traveling. This is a business trip. I feel I got, I got an expense account. I got a card. I got a... I got a flight ahead of me. I got a layover ahead of me. I got to look. I want to have a book. I want to be able to post a picture on my Instagram of me on a work trip with a book, shaping my leadership, becoming more potential and, and ripe for promotion and all of the things involved uh, in being sort of self-made. And so they, they know their market. They're not idiots. They sell a lot of those books uh, in, in that way. And um, and, and I, I get it. I, I sort of under, understand that. But it's that, it, it, what is it that they're selling in that moment? It, it's, again, uh, this self-actualization piece of hurry up and matter, hurry up and matter, um, because don't waste your life in this way. And those books are interesting. They're oftentimes, you know, they're, they're quick reads or whatever, and um, you, you can leave feeling inspired. You can leave feeling whatever. You read through the acknowledgement section, because every book's supposed to have, like, you know, here's who I'm thankful for. And those ones are often, oftentimes, you know, to my editor, thanks for reminding me how good I really am. And you're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Uh, 
And you can read it and you can, and if you've seen this, there is a tendency in which if you find yourself as self-made, what are the, what are the dark sides of it? One of the things that people don't think about, or uh, you've seen this, if you've seen the, and I'm using like hyperbole to kind of illustrate a point on this, but because uh, there definitely are, you know, healthy people who are self-made and all that stuff. But a dark side of, of that sort of self-actualization is it begins to get a little bit lonely at the top, right? That some of the most self-made promotion people that you know are oftentimes people who are like, nobody gets me. And it's very, very lonely. It's very, very isolating. It's very, very, I made it here and nobody understands me and I just kind of do my own thing on this. And uh, that can be a really, really uh, difficult piece. Uh, And yet, for whatever reason, we are quick to promote self-made as a label that we like, even though it has this isolationist sort of bent to it. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take that reality and be like, okay, we we talked about that. I want to pin this up here for a second and I'm going to come back to it, I promise you, but I'm going to take a hard left here and I'm just warning you. A couple years ago, I got into a pirates phase. You remember pirates? Like me talking about pirates a bunch? I know it's hard left. I told you it was coming. Um, I read a book called Mutiny Bear, a guy named Kesha Bruin, about church and how the church is sort of like this pirate sort of mentality. And it was, it's seriously, it's one of my top five favorite church books about like how to think about what you're doing, especially when you're trying to be a church for unchurched people. It was like, oh, it was like right in my alley, like he's reading my mail, right? And then, then it got talking about pirates, not just on the Caribbean back in like, you know, Jack Sparrow sort of stuff, but like just piracy in general. We did a series, we did a teaching series. Six weeks I talked to you about pirate radio, radio stations that would be on boats off of the coast of Britain because Britain would kind of monopolize what music got played. And so um, late at night, these boats would turn on, fire up the, the antennas and they would broadcast the Beatles and all the songs that were excluded because there's censorship issues or it, you know copyright issues or something. And they would be like, well, screw you. We don't need your land stations. We'll go out here and we'll drive these boats. And they were having problems trying to track them down. It's brilliant. It was brilliant if you had, you know, could tune into this sort of thing. They made a movie about it. If you haven't watched the movie, do that, right? Anyways, all kinds of fun stuff about that. And I think part of it was pirates have always had an appeal. Uh, You know, that's why the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean ride is so big. That's why the movies were such a a huge hit. We've all been pirates at one time. Remember LimeWire? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I was in the LimeWire. You were in the Napster. We all, that's piracy, right? We watched those. You wouldn't steal a car. You wouldn't steal this. You'd steal a movie. You're like, well, you know, I might steal a movie. Who knows? Uh, I wouldn't put it past myself. I streamed UFC fights last night. Listen, we never grow out of this UFC, uh, this uh, piracy sort of phase. And here's what I learned about piracy in terms of marketplace. So we have to kind of think about it not in terms of, uh, you know, eye patches and, and uh, sticks for legs or something like that. But um, uh, we, sorry, that was gruesome. That was a weird one. Not in the notes, clearly. In terms of markets though, all right, markets and how markets work. Um, Whenever, and this is coming from that book that I read a while ago, whenever a market has very few players at the top, meaning there's like sort of a monopoly or there's only a couple of players in this thing, it's really expensive to get into as, as a market. It's, pro, it's costly and prohibitive, really. Like there's no reason for anybody else to start. You've never heard of anybody being like, I think I want to start an oil drilling business. You know what I mean? It's like the most expensive thing to get into. You've never had a friend. That's what they wanted to start and be like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the new shell. You know what I mean? That 
doesn't happen. Um, and, and then also unfair processes and procedures or the system is unfair in the perception of the people uh, beneath it in terms of cost. And you, 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 we pay this money and then we hear every, it feels like every election cycle, we hear about how much uh, you know, ExxonMobil CEO makes in his bonuses every, every year or whatever. And, and it just, it's kind of meant to kind of rise something in us to be like, see, that's what's unfair about American capitalism, blah, 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 blah all the stuff, right? So fewer players at the top, prohibitive to get into, so not a lot of innovation from like new people, uh, and then just un seemingly unfair policies. That's kind of an, an arena that's ripe for piracy. Um, that, that sort of a market is something's going to come along or probably going to come along. The market evolution of something, somebody's going to be, be a pirate, change some things up. They're going to explode this thing. Then they're going to get old, they're going to mature, and they're going to have policies and everything's, the market's going to evolve and, and adjust and, and overcome that sort of thing. But that's what we have in the, the maritime trade in, in, the, in the 1700s and 1800s when, when they were having these problems with British sailors who were risking their life to transport goods and services across the sea and do these things, risking their life every time they do this and they get back and they'd get paid off and they'd get like 1% of the share, 2%, whatever the, the cost was. And they're realizing like the person at home who risked nothing got way more than I did. And so as the boats like heading out to major sea, then they would have these mutinies on these ships and be like, we're taking this over. We're going to do our own thing because we just feel like it's prohibitive to get into. There's a few people who get rich at the sake of the cost of us. Um, and it's seemingly unfair to all of us. So that's how that piracy sort of thing happened. Um, another example that I, this is what I wanted to kind of lead into in, in terms of where we're headed with this. Um, in 1707, there was a, uh, a guy, a publisher named Henry Hills, who operated out of Britain uh, and began publishing books that were being produced. He would take a book that started to get popular, and he would produce it very cheaply on cheap material and would sell it for a hundredth of the cost of the book. Uh, and so education was in, in, and costs were involved in all this kind of stuff. And so he would, he would print them cheaply and basically pirate the material. And on the tagline on the bottom would be for the benefit for the benefit of the poor. Now, he would charge so little, um, it was likely that he never even made a single penny off of this thing. And he became to be notorious amongst the book publishers of, of them who, who were like, hey, you can't do this. Like, we're paying the writers and the artists to be able to kind of come up with this kind of stuff. And you're undercutting us and it's ruining the entire system. Here's what they said. Um, here was this article in, in uh, a magazine that had this deal. He had no respect for the customs of his craft and he did not hesitate when any good poem, pamphlet, or sermon, he printed a lot of sermons, by the way, but only by good pastors he said. That was his like big thing. Um, so I like this guy already. Immediately to reprint it in a much cheaper form, this was deemed a low and mean proceeding. Doubtless publishers tried to make him give up the practice, but he wouldn't and he continued to do it nearly to his time of death. And it forced Britain society to reestablish and re-up copyright laws. And so uh, for them, the copyright laws became a huge deal. This Again, this is like early 1700s, right? This is when America is not yet formed. We haven't done the Declaration of Independence. That wouldn't come for 72 more years. Uh, but uh, it's it's people are moving towards here. They're establishing and they're operating as an extension of the British Empire over here. And the British Empire at home is getting all, into all these copyright laws. And yet, on American soil, it beginning to be one of those things where they're like, well, you know, maybe not for us. So as the copyright laws are going hard over here, you have guys like Benjamin Franklin over here going, we are going to be, if, if America is going to survive, or if we're going to survive over here, they weren't thinking of, of America at that point, but if we are going to survive as a fledgling little society away from the hubbub of everything else, we are going to need to raise the education uh, stuff of all of the people who call this place home. Uh, and to do it if cost effectively, we are going to overlook copyright laws, and we are not going to recognize those laws over here. It would be one of the many things that would eventually cause us to dump tea in the, the, the Boston Harbor and you know declare our independence from uh, the, the UK. But 
Um, and this would have been a, a massive deal for them. And uh, Benjamin Franklin was, was one of the, like the primary people who kind of led this sort of influential, uh, influential sort of thinking and, and way of doing things. We know him as this like writer, as uh, one of the, the founding fathers. We know him probably, if you remember like grade school and all the books that you read about him, flying a kite in a thunderstorm and discovering electricity and, and, and doing all this kind of stuff. And, and a lot of his inventions, including that one, would, he would have reprinted and not put his name on and just thrown them out to the common good. Hey, if this is helpful for anybody, please use this and, and please make this uh, accessible. After all, the things that I learned came freely to me and I'm passing them along to you. In his autobiography, here's what he writes about this. And he writes this, as we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by an invention of ours. And this we should do freely and generously. So, I say all that to kind of present this like counterpoint to uh, these self-made books in these in these things of buy this book and you can do it, hurry up and matter, and I've got the keys to it, and um, you know I and it feels lonely, it's independent, and I got here myself. Versus this like young American sort of if we're gonna survive, if we're gonna do this. We're going to need everybody to kind of be a part of this. And, and eventually America would go on and establish its own copyright lives, which is why, you know, you can't sit in the back of a movie theater and film it on a you know, thing and say, my pastor told me it was okay in a sermon or, you know, buy a book and print it and put like a little tagline for the, for the benefit of the poor or whatever and be like, hey, you can't sue me now. Um, they can, so don't do that. So uh, that's not what I'm talking about. But two different mentalities, right? One of isolationist, I'm, I'm good on my own. One of... On the other side of things, and on the on the other side of the spectrum, um, kind of we're all in this together, and we kind of um, we uh, we need to be needed, and we are um, the only way this is going to work, and this season is going to require something different for us. All right, if you're wondering what this has to do with church, and you're in church, and we should be talking about the Bible, good, we're here, we're ready. We're going to look at Philippians today, and we're going to look at chapter two specifically. Paul writes a letter to a church in Philippi. One of his many churches, remember he was uh, the apost- one of the apostles, not one of Jesus' disciples. He would have been anti-church and anti-Christianity, uh, the very first part. Uh, the anti-hero who then has a visible encounter with Jesus, um, it gets knocked off his donkey, and then all of a sudden uh, becomes the pro- biggest proponent of the church. And yet, He's a traitor to his Judeish, uh, Judean heritage, and it, people in early Christianity and churches don't trust him. Uh, and so what he's forced to do is then kind of go out from Israel and expand and do like these missionary journeys where he would take boats to all different kinds of places, Philippi, uh, Colossae, Thessalonica, Corinth, um, uh, yeah, uh, all, all of these different spots, starting these churches, writing letters back and forth to these churches, correspondence, which would then later be captured as letters. They would share the letters with one another. And eventually the early church or the church as an organization would capture these, put them into a canonization or a, um, a collection, a, a ordained collection of writings and call it uh, the New Testament scriptures or the Christian scriptures. Um, and they would make up part of the Bible that you have today. Anyways, um, in he would have different sorts of relationships with all of these different churches. Some of them he would visit multiple times and he would have multiple letters. So in Corinth, we have first and second Corinthians because he visited there several times. In Romans, he never, he never visited Rome. He wrote a letter to Rome knowing that he was gonna be there at one point and wanted to offer his advice to it. But in Philippi, he has like a special attachment to the church in Philippi. Um, and you can see it early on. He starts all of his letters off in the same way. Um, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the grace and, you know, grace and peace to you, uh, the people living in, you know, X place, wherever he's writing to. 
Um, and then as soon as he does his little intro, then he oftentimes would go into, here's the business for my writing. Here's why you're receiving a letter from me. And sometimes it's pretty harsh. Like in Corinth, like in the same breath in which he says, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, grace and peace to you. What the blankety blank's going on over there? I've heard some stories about some things and I've got some issues with what's happening uh, in here, right? Um, and yet to, so then we get to the, the Philippians letter, right? And in the Philippians letter, he does this little intro and then he goes right into what's called Thanksgiving and what does mine say on it? Thanksgiving and prayer. And immediately he's like, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And he's gonna go on and he's gonna just love on them. He's gonna gush. He is going to be so positive towards the Philippians that it's clear he's kind of got a favorite. Now, you're not supposed to have favorite kids and I hope that you don't, but uh, let's let's put it in the position of if you've ever, if we have a lot of teachers who attend East Lake. If you're a teacher, you have a favorite kid in the class. You do. Don't say who it is. It doesn't matter. They're not in your class anymore. But you have a kid who in your mind, you think, listen, I need to teach in a way that Katie gets it. And I'm just picking a name, that Katie gets it. Because if Katie doesn't get it, there's no way on God's green earth Kevin's getting it, all right? And I need to make sure that somebody that it, and if your name's Kevin, that's two weeks in a row that I picked on you. And that's just because I don't know any Kevins that attend East Lake. If your name is Kevin, you attend East Lake, let me know. I'll pick a different name. It'll be fine. We'll move on. But um, that's, uh, that, that's kind of his, his way of doing it. He's looking at this going, listen, I have planted, I've been a part of multiple church plants now. I need you guys to get that. You guys have been incredible. And he's about to transition and say, I need to make sure that you get this right because you're my best hope, right? You're the one that like, like uh, is probably gonna make it and is gonna survive this thing and is gonna figure this thing out and is gonna live in community. And you're gonna experience trials, but you're gonna get through them. You're gonna continue to love one another and it's not gonna be, you're not gonna organize and then, and then uh, you know, become a difficult thing or something that it wasn't meant to be. Like, I have so much hope in who you are as a community that I really need you to get something right, right? And so he, he does a welcome, he butters them up, and then he transitions into this request. And that's where we're gonna pick it up. It's gonna be in chapter two, the very first part. Uh, we're gonna look through the first eight verses together. I'm gonna try and explain a little bit to you. And just so you know, this some of the material specifically in the second half of this is some of the most deepest, densest uh, theological language that there's no way I could ever attempt to, you know, go through it all in, in, it would require like its own teaching series and probably somebody with far more letters after that name than myself. But we're gonna attempt it together in light of kind of this spectrum of, of life experience that we have uh, with this way. So Philippians chapter two, verse one, here's what he says. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any command, uh, common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each, each of you to the interests of others. There's basically like four different sections in here. In the first section, he's basically saying, listen, if any of this has worked for you, I mean, if you like this, if, 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 you, if your life has been changed because of your experience and your encounter with the living Christ, if your exposure to who he was and the way of life that he taught, and if doing life in this community, this interpretive community about what it means to live in the way of Jesus has helped you out in any way, 
then I'm gonna need you to do me a quick solid. I'm gonna need you to do me a favor and be of like mind to have the same love, to be one in spirit and of one mind. This is a passage on unity. In fact, a lot of times um, this is uh, like the, the, the topic of it. And he's, he, he recognizes this. The greatest danger for any healthy church is gonna be disunity. The greatest danger uh, that's gonna be, uh, that, that is, is gonna affect somebody who's experienced a lot of success and has a lot of things going for it, as he just bragged about in, in verse one, and in a business, is that we get so successful and so wealthy that we begin to like silo up a little bit, that we begin to question what it is that the other person, that the other, that partner brings to the table, that we begin to discount what everybody else has done in light of what I've done and what I've sacrificed and they don't even get me and they don't understand how much I've done. And they, they, they don't, they, it feels, it begins to get isolating and it begins to get, feel lonely. He's gonna say this, listen, there's gonna be, there's gonna be a chance, there's gonna be a, a temptation for you to be so good at being a church that it becomes about you. And when people are passionate about certain things, that's great, and that other people are passionate about certain things. And if those things are in conflict with one another, then it's only a matter of time before they say, well, you go off and start your own church. If you wanna believe that in that way, you, there's, there's, no, there's, no fair, there, there's no fair ground, there's no openness, there's no this. It's like, you think like me or get out of here. And then it begins to be like, I'm the only one that thinks correctly about this. Why am I the only one that gets this? Why am I the only one? He's like, I know it seems silly and it seems so weird, but he's like, I've seen this in so many different places. Success begins to get achieved and then an isolationist mentality begins to breed. And it's, it's, a, it's a prime and, and fertile ground for uh, loneliness and um, a sense in which I'm doing it right, nobody else is doing it right. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition or vain conceit. And I would propose that's exactly what's being proposed in these Hudson bookseller books, things that are, are being picked up, right? Which is, which is this idea of I built this, I did this, and you don't, you know, I, acknowledgement section is lacking. And it's like, you, you see lives oftentimes that we prize as a culture are lives who, of somebody who has operated in a high you know, efficiency thing of selfish ambition and vain conceit. But in humility, he's often this alternative, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That he would, see, he would say, the way to do this is to have a, a level of humility in your life that recognizes, even though I see us all as equals, that I don't see anybody else as better than me, and I don't see myself as better than anybody else. However, their needs are more important than my own. That that is truly what love is. That he, you know, think about it through the lens of a parent. What does it mean to be a parent of a child? And what does it mean to love your child? For a long season, and maybe your entire life, but and I think that evolves over time. Your role as a parent, the love, the way that a, or the form that a parent's love takes of a child is, their needs in this moment are higher than my own. I don't want to change that diaper. I don't want to, but their needs are higher than my own. I don't want to pay for them to go to do this, but their needs are higher than my own. That's this. That's how love plays out. I don't see them as worse than me or better than me, or, but their needs in this moment are higher than my own. So make my joy complete and live in this way. Uh, I, something I had written down a long time ago that's on a post-it note 
in my office because I think we used it as part of a series once. And I just feel like it plays again in this way. Our lives shine most brightly when shared with the lives of others and become most meaningful in the spaces beyond the objects we consume behind closed doors. That as we, as we achieve success, there's a tendency in which we determine the quality of our life behind what we are able to consume behind closed doors and uh, the nice things that we're allowed to have and drive and wear and eat and drink. And that is all fine and good, except our lives shine most brightly when shared with the lives of other others and become most meaningful in the spaces beyond what we consume behind closed doors. That though that may be fine to eat or drink, it tastes better. It's just better life experience when it's done with someone else, when others are involved in that. So then he goes on, verse five. In your relationships, and this is where it gets a little bit like he's treading into some deep waters here, everybody. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, in other words, in his essence, he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He never played the God card. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He was both God and both man. How do you do that? I don't know. That would, Paul would say that's the mystery of it, right? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the format of it, if you have it in your Bible, is oftentimes the indentations taken out. It's kind of like instead of uh, something to be you know, formatted on the left, it's more like in the center, which is an indicator that um, something is at work here or at play here. Oftentimes this is thought of as some sort of a poem or a creed or a something that the early church kind of took. They wouldn't have, I mean, early on, there was no Bible. The Bible wouldn't come into its formal actualization until about 400 AD. Um, however, it would be in, in practice earlier than that. But for the most part, they didn't have text. They would gather together, the early church, um, and, and history would say that they shared a meal together. They sang songs about who Jesus was. Uh, they held each other accountable for their actions. They prayed for one another, and then they went off to work. Uh, Sunday was a work day for them. So they did this on Sunday, even though Sabbath was a Saturday. They, this is the Christian way of doing things. They would gather together. Their songs that they would sing, their recitations, they would be early on slow symbols of some sort of a theology about who the person of Jesus was. As they're working out, like we know he was here. We think that he was the son of God. What does that mean? Well, we're working that out. And Paul dives into it deeply. And in this way, let me go real quick. He begins to say, there was a form that Jesus had who being in very, who being in very nature God. In other words, he was the unchangeable divine that we love about God, a God who is unchanging, who then be, who then changed himself for our sake. So well, then did he give up his divinity? No, he held on to it. But I thought if you were gonna be divine, then you couldn't change. Yes, I know, but he also then changed. So it's like, what do we do? Did I, I knew I was, uh, see, I figured if we go into this, I'm gonna lose you. And I knew I would, and, and it loses me, guys. So please, please understand. Books and books and books have been written by this, by people a lot smarter than both you and I. As humanity attempts to understand how a God out there could have made himself known through Jesus. And not only that, he did that, but then he did what he did to humble himself to obedience to death, even death on a cross, to become a picture, to, to experience pain and suffering, to die a death that was reserved for traitors to society, uh, sinful people, I mean, you know, uh, crucified between two lifelong criminals, 
And this would have been a, a message of, we don't know what to do with a God who chooses this as his way of interacting with the world, who chooses humility in this way. A favorite concept of Paul that he's gonna bring up over and over and over again, specifically Corinthians and, and Philippians and Ephesians, though God was rich, though he had a lot, though he was divine, though he was this, he made himself nothing. You're gonna hear Paul say that a ton. Though he had all these things going for him, chose the path of humility. And he doesn't leave us with no practical implications. In fact, Paul was a master saying, this is deep, this is whatever, but focus in for a moment and think about what this might mean for us. If this is true about who Jesus was, then my encouragement for you, please do me a solid, live in harmony with one another. Live in such a way that somebody else's needs are more important than your own. Live in such a way that you don't pursue vain conceit and, and meaningless, all this stuff at the expense and, and begin to feel isolation, nobody else gets me. And you're like, and I got here and I earned it and I did this and it's very isolating and it's very you focused. He's like, take your mind off of yourself in this way. Don't do this out of selfish ambition. Don't waste your life with that. Instead, recognize that somebody far more important than you, far more qualified than you, chose a path of humility and invites you into a way of life of doing that exact same thing. That that is the way of Jesus. That's Paul's invitation to this church in Philippi. Listen, you guys are doing so good. You're doing amazing. Just so you know, what comes with success oftentimes is this tendency to get to a spot where you finally feel like I've arrived and I turn and I look around and be like, look how far I've come. Look what I've done. And when you do that, you're gonna lose sight of who benefited? Who you benefited from in getting there and what you're supposed to do with all of this influence and what you're supposed to do with all of this blessing and how you're supposed to live in result, as a result of this. And so to kind of conclude our, our series with this, I, I'm not like, I'm not anti-self-made. I just wanted to point out how easy it is for us to kind of ingest that and be like, it's, it, that's 100% positive. There's no reluctance in doing that. And to really say, the way of Jesus says that nobody's truly self-made. And even if we were, um, or even the, the, the spots that we have that are good, it's only supposed to be used as, as a benefit for others, to say that others' needs are above my own. And the reason that I know that that's true is because Jesus modeled that for me and for us in the most perfect way. And he had more to lose than any of us and more to lose than me. And Paul would say, guys, I want you, I'm so desperate for you to get this right. And so my encouragement to you as, as your pastor and as you kind of wrestle with this like religious, irreligious and, and labels that we wear, whatever that is, whatever that case may be. Because oftentimes the, the problem that we have with, assigning ourselves the label of religious is it kind of feels like, like uh, we need something to get through life. Religion's like a mental crutch. But you, oh, you, so you like, you need religion? Like you can't make enough meaning in life? Life's not just uh, meaningful enough for you. You need something that transcends this. And it feels like there's some pride sometimes in saying, I don't need that. I don't need religion for that. I feel a sense of fulfillment in the work that I do and the volunteering that I do and the money that I make and the family that I have and all that's good and fine and good. But uh, I, I think that when it comes to this, uh, this piece of, uh, of religion, I, I think that I would hope um, that in our time together as, as a point of reflection for, for perhaps something like this, that we would say, um, no, I do need 
I do need that. I'm like, I don't want to shy away from the religious symbol because it's a sign of weakness that I, that I need something to get through in life and I need meaning that's external to me to help make sense of life. I, I do need that. I do need that. There, there's a, a psalm that we've mentioned multiple times, a prayer uh, that says, God, don't, don't bless me too much in life that I kind of like throw up my hands and look up and say, like, who needs God? But just give me enough for my daily bread. Give me enough so that I don't have to steal and therefore dishonor your name. But don't give me too much that I'm like, I don't really need anything. I don't need religion. I don't need that. Like just, there's like a, there's like a, a sweet spot right in the middle somewhere. There's a tension in which I live with. Help me to reside there. Help me to find fulfillment there. Help me to live there. So my encouragement to you would be as you wrestle with this do I, am I religious? Am I not religious? What am I doing with this? I, I think uh, religious, religion like communicates a need, a brokenness, a hole that needs filled. And I look to something external to make meaning for it. And I don't think that that's a sign of weakness. I think that Jesus invites us into that going, we all need that. We all need that. So I got a few questions to kind of continue the conversation for you. We've done this kind of periodically throughout this series and the last couple of series. Uh, this can be done, um, you know, over lunch today with somebody that you came here with or dinner or on, on your own. If you're more of a, I work by myself sort of thing, um, that, that's fine too. But um, they're gonna be on the screen in case they come up too fast. You can't write them down fast enough. They're on the notes app, a notes section in the app. But here, here's the first one. When, what's something I'm quick to give myself sole credit for? Where am I perhaps most tempted to say, I did this, right? This was this is my thing. What's something I'm quick to give myself credit for? Number two, if your life were a book, who would show up in the acknowledgement section? Who have you needed to get to where you're at? Who do you need to remind yourself was a key component in getting me to where I am today? And number three, do you agree with the phrase, our lives shine most brightly when shared with the lives of others and become most meaningful in the spaces beyond the objects we consume behind closed doors? And if that's true, then what do I do with that? Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.